The Lessons Learned for Vets podcast is proud to be brought to you by AFMA, the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. Established in 1879, they are the longest standing nonprofit association empowering military families with affordable financial solutions for generations. Offering life insurance, wealth management, mortgages, survivor assistance, and other benefits, AFMA is here to support you through every stage of life. AFMA is dedicated to helping service members be financially and logistically ready for life after the military. To support you in this process, AFMA would like to offer you their free downloadable transition timeline, a step-by-step guide to help you create a comprehensive military transition plan. Let AFMA help you get ready for your next step by visiting afma.com backslash LL4V. That's A-A-F-M-A-A.com slash LL, the number four, V or clicking the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Lessons Learned for Vets podcast, your military transition debrief from the veteran mentors who've gone before you. My name is Lori Norris, and I've been teaching veterans how to successfully navigate their military transition since 2005. I'm a civilian who speaks the language of all branches of the U.S. military, and I'm on a mission to educate veterans in the job search marketing process. This podcast shares the military transition hot washes and after action reports of your fellow veterans to smooth your own path out of the military. Be you in all your glory. Like I tell people, you should let yourself hang out because it will come out eventually. And if it doesn't fit, then you you should know that up front. Like I'd rather save you the time, forget about the company. I'd rather save you the time of going someplace and not being successful because they don't really know who you are. And those who want you will love you for all of your all of yourself, right? And so um, I really encourage people to just like, you know, I mean, obviously within the bounds of decorum, but I mean, you should be yourself, you know, don't, don't hide who you are um, because I don't think that serves anybody. Well, welcome back to part two with Ken Davenport, the author of The Stoic Transition. We spent last week talking about kind of the foundations of the book and stoicism in general and how it related to the transition. So We're going to wrap up this week with just some more concepts within the book and just about stoicism and all of the things that that you can use stoicism for in the transition process. And just to prepare you for, as Ken said last week, all the transitions that are coming your way for the rest of your career, right? So welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be here. We talked a little bit, we alluded to it last week about that fire hose of information, right? So, um, and that is something that I remember when I used to teach the transition assistance program, I had a chief tell me, he was like, he's like, I feel like I'm trying to drink from a fire hose when I listen to you. So I, it is a lot, right? It's like, sometimes you feel like you're drowning in a sea of goodwill and good intentions out there. So, um, so you recommend that in this, that they kind of stop trying to process all the available data and focus on what you can control. So tell me what that is. Yeah, so I mean, there, there are a couple things I would say about um, this sort of fire hose of information. I think the, the you know, look, we, 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 transition, we transition veterans or service members out of the military in, in a one-week process, right? They spend 10 years in, and then they get a week to, to get out, right? And so I think, you know, starting this process as early as possible is, I think, the first thing, which is the most successful 
transitions that I've seen are ones that start 18 months out, you know, where, where you're not having to filter a massive amount of information in a very short period of time, but you actually have runway with which to like deal with it as it comes and be very thoughtful about what it is that you're hearing, what you're seeing, who you're talking to. And you can only do that with the benefit of what I call runway. Now, whether that's runway before you transition or runway after you transition because you don't need a job right away, you need you need time to decompress, to assess, you know, to review, to think about what it is that you what is that you want. And what are the things that are, you know, importantly, what are the things that are reasonable for you to expect? And I think the expectation process, and this is true particularly with senior officers who are getting out, you know, 05s and 06s, but some with junior officers as well, depending on their background, um, and, and even senior enlisted, is what are, you, what are you expecting to get when you get out? What does the transition look like for you and what are your expectations? And the reality is that, you know, even as a ship captain, you know, you're not going to go into a private company as an executive vice president running a big division, most likely, right? Yes, you commanded a ship with 2,000 sailors and you know how to lead, but you have to look at the opportunities that are coming your way um, with some humility and with some, uh, with the expectation that you have to relearn. You're relearning a new language, a new system, a new a new environment, and that that transition is not going to be linear. You know, you're probably going to take a couple steps back before you can go forward. And so, I think the whole idea of you know focusing on what you can control again, you can you can control your attitude toward the opportunity that you're looking at. And I had a number, you know, a couple of many stories in the book, but one story was with a very good friend of mine, actually, who I had been mentoring since 2012. And um, he was a, a Marine, a Navy Academy grad, a, a Marine officer um, who had gone from the Marine Corps into the defense industry and really wanted to make a transition, um, you know, to the civilian world. And um I got him hooked up with another veteran who a veteran friend who who run, was running um, uh, Cox Communications here in San Diego, and he ended up going to work for him, but not not without a lot of trepidation and a lot of anxiety around, um, you know, what does he know about cable? What does he know about technology? What does he know? What does he know? And the reality is that he he had a lot of skills that the company was looking for leadership being the, the big one. Um, and and he ended up making a phenomenal transition and has actually been promoted several times since then. And that was expectations on the other other side. Like the company knew what they were looking for. The veteran didn't think that they had the skills to do the job. And you see it both ways. You see higher too high expectations or too low expectations based on what they what people think that they bring to the table. And the reality is is that you can't really control necessarily um, how you're going to fit into an opportunity. All you can do is show up with confidence, not arrogance, but confidence, and know that what you bring to the table in the right environment will be utilized and will be rewarded. And if it's not the right environment, it won't be. And you will know that, I think, fairly quickly. And I think you make a really good point in that, you know, again, we go back to what can we control? We can control how we 
um, come into the job search, right? Like the confidence in, in our abilities and our, in our ability to add value to an organization. Um, and we can't control whether they understand and see how that value can work in their organization. So we just now need to move to the next person. Right. With That doesn't, just because this person didn't see that value, it doesn't mean your value is diminished. It just means it doesn't fit there, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, and, and I, I talk a lot when I, uh, when I teach transition about um, what I call kind of the Darwinian theory of transition, which is kind of a natural selection process if you are not if your background in the military is not appreciated not valued by the company or organization you're talking to you need to like keep walking because that is not the right place for you you need to know that the culture is the most important thing in any organization you go into and if they don't get you and if they don't appreciate you and if they don't value what you've done i had a situation where i was um well, I brought a four black co- four black cohort to a company, and one of the one of the execs of the company sort of said, "You know, you we 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 like it when you tone down your military experience, and we you know we're, we're not um, we're not a heavily you know military environment, and so um, we we kind of like it when you you know don't wear your military service on your sleeve, kind of a thing, right?" And we left there, and I was like. We're never, first of all, we're never going back to that company because that is not a good fit for us. Right. (laughs) But the reality is, is that like, that is a, that's a blinking red flag saying, Hey, if you come here, we're actually not going to value and appreciate and reward you for what you bring to the table. We actually want to stuff it down. Right. And so what I, what I've said, and I think is true in a lot of, um, I think good transition programs emphasizes it's all it's culture, culture. The top five things in transition, in, in terms of going to a company, the top three are culture, right? <laughs> the fourth one is your boss, and the fifth one is pay and and salary, right? Because those top four things is going to be the difference between you being happy and being successful, and not regardless of what your title or salary is. Yeah. And and how do you find out about culture? So there's I I have a diagram in the book where, you know, there's kind of this. And it wasn't my theory, but there's an iceberg theory of culture where, you know, at the top with the iceberg, it has a little bit of itself above water and you have certain things that you can see, right? You can see, you know, what the office looks like if they have an office, how do people dress, you know, um, how do people, how does, how do people present themselves? And underneath the waterline that you can't see are all these intangible things about working there. Like, is it punitive? Is it do you reward risk? You know, are you encouraged to take chances? You know, are you going to be a valued team member for your opinion? Like all those things do you don't see at on the surface. So how do you find those things out? Well, it goes back to, you know, networking with, with a purpose and, you know, finding veterans, you know, on LinkedIn who work at that company and, and asking questions about like, Hey, what's your experience? Like, like, do they like, do they, do they allow you to like think outside the box? Do they allow you to like bring, you know, your leadership qualities to the fore, you know, all those things, which don't show up in a company report aren't on the website. Like that stuff, you just got to kind of suss out. And fortunately with the internet, I don't think it's hard to do that, but you got to do the work, you know, to kind of figure that out. It's culture, culture, and, and really kind of, um, you know, thinking through again, what are the things that you can control and how you present yourself? And, 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 and I would say this, this also, we talked a little about this last week, be, be yourself, be you, 
be you in all your glory. Like I tell people, you should let yourself hang out because it will come out eventually. And if it doesn't fit, then you you should know that up front. Like I'd rather save you the time, forget about the company. I'd rather save you the time of going someplace and not being successful because they don't really know who you are. And those who want you will love you for all of your all of yourself, right? And so um, I really encourage people to just like, you know, I mean, obviously within the bounds of decorum, but I mean, you should be yourself, you know, don't, don't hide who you are um, because I don't think that serves anybody. Maybe not drop F-bombs in the interview. I agree. That falls under decorum. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, be your professional self, right? Yes, so, yeah, exactly. I, I think I've told the story on the show before. I, don't, I haven't had to fire very many people in my career. But the one person that I, the last person I fired, um, he was a totally different person in the interview than the person that showed up for his first day of work. And we sat uh, two doors down from the CEO. And I, I, it was like my first few days with him, he was embarrassing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had to go to him and say like, who you are, who you've been this week is very different than the person I met in the interview. And he said, he's like, oh yeah, that's who I, this is who I really am. I just was that way because I figured that's how I had to get hired. Right. <laughs> So and how did that and how did that work out? Not well. Yeah, he wasn't working for me very long. <laughs> so unfortunately, because it just he wasn't the right fit for a corporate environment. Like his his personality, the way he went about his work was better suited not in a corporate setting, right? And that's okay. That's a great learning, right? Like he he will find now a place where he's better suited. And those places are out there. There's a culture for everyone. Like you, there are there are there's work styles and work environments. There's hybrid, there's remote, there's like you can find whatever fits you now. You don't have to like shove yourself into a three-piece suit and you know put on a tie and like pretend to be something you're not. I don't I think that's old fashioned. I don't think that's the, the case anymore. Yeah, I just did a an episode on like nonverbal communication. And one of the things I said about how you dress for an interview, I was like, make sure you're comfortable in it. Because if you're not comfortable dressing that way for the interview, like, do you think you're going to be comfortable dressing that way every day at work? And so maybe that's not the right environment for you. If you put on a suit and you're like, oh, this is yeah. terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, exactly. I can't imagine suits are very comfortable anyway, but you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you talk about in the book, the concept of backwards planning, your kind of ideal post-military career. So I know you go into it in depth in the book, um, but tell us, give me just a quick overview of that. Well, the, um, you know, backward planning, actually backward planning is, is a Stoic concept also in, in an interesting way. You know, when the Stoics talk about failure, no failure for Stoics should be a surprise because they've already reverse engineered the worst possible scenarios right so you kind of work backward from sort of planning and preparing for the kind of the worst thing to happen so you're able to kind of plan for that eventuality and also make course corrections based on the feedback that you're getting as you're going through the process so the first chapter of the book is about finding your why and the reason why that's the first chapter is because until you understand what your real like why you get up in the morning and what really moves you beyond money. Like money is not a why money is a result of whatever it is that you're doing in your life, that that whole 
idea of finding your sort of reason for being that kind of core operating principle for your life is so important because if you, you know, if you don't have that, you really don't know how to move forward. And so what I like to do is say, okay, let's assume that you understand your why. What is, what does success look like for you? Like five years from now, what in your mind is the life that you think you want to be leading? Now, like anything, your life is not going to look like that in five years. But if you have a perception or a vision of what you want it to look like, then it's a lot easier to reverse engineer kind of how to get there. So I talked to a veteran last night who really wants to be on 10 acres of land and have his own kind of, um, you know, have his chickens and have his own little (laughs) farm and be son of a little bit off the grid. And he wants to write. And he's like, that's where I want to be in three or four years. And I'm like, oh, my God, that that's great that you know that. So what's the process for getting you there? Right. It's much easier to think of tactically about, OK, here's what I got to do to make that happen. And I think a lot of times we're very reactive. I think civilians are very reactive in their lives to what's right in front of them and what the next step is, not thinking about where they really want to get to. And retirement, you know, and and living on a golf course when you're 70 is not really what I'm talking about. Like what I'm talking about is what is while you're still active and still really productive, what is the lifestyle that you're looking for? You know, do you want to be home with your kids more? Do you want to be on the road? Do you like, you know, what kind of what is the what's the picture that you paint about your life? And then being able to work backward to say, okay, well, that eliminates like all of these things because it doesn't fit that vision, but it actually opens up a lot of other things now that you should be looking at because it does fit that vision. And so a lot of the kind of journaling and visual visualizing, which is hard to do, like none of this is easy. There's a reason why people avoid it because it's hard to sit down with a blank piece of paper and say, Hey, what do you want your life to be like in five years? Or like, what's your, you know, what's your dream look like? And you're like, oh, well, you know, I don't know. And so it takes iterative time to kind of figure that out. But the more you kind of understand the end point, the more you kind of can think about what are the steps that I want to take to get to that place? Like a, like a friend of mine recently said, you know, I really want to live in Europe and I really want to work in Europe and I want to, I want to raise my kids for a couple of years in Europe. And, and he's like, I'm starting to put a plan in place to be able to do that in, in three to five years. And so he was thinking about like, okay, here's my five-year goal. What do I got to do now? What kind of job do I need? What skills do I need? How do I work remotely? What is the, what is the job that I can do that would add value to a company in Europe? Like, you know, so the, that kind of like tactical planning, just based on like the goal in mind of, of where they want to go. Yeah, I like that. I think it's it, it kind of ties into the next um, aspect that I want to talk to you about. And you talk about operating from logic and reacting from logic instead of emotion. We talked about it a little bit last week, but I think that when you think about that five year goal, like what do I want my life to look at? That's very much emotion driven. Right. And it's, um, you know, we think of it as our daydream, our goal or, you know, our, our, what we want our life to look like. But it takes logic 
to get there, right? It takes the planning to get there. And I think you mentioned it earlier. It's like about um, what you want in the future versus what I want today. Today, I want to go to Dairy Queen and get a peanut butter parfait. <laughs> but, to, you know, in the future, I want to fit in my pants. Right? So yeah, like, yeah, what yeah, it, yeah. that's like, I think that's a logic versus emotion decision, right? That's a super good question because I think there's this, this toggle that goes on in your brain between your limbic system and your knee and your frontal cortex. So the whole idea about um, even finding your why is, you know, th there's a part of your brain that um, doesn't really have the capacity for logic and language, but really drives your feelings, right? Like what, what is your why based on how it makes you feel right around? Like I feel purposeful. I feel, in, I feel uh, empowered. I feel passionate about this issue like it th that doesn't happen in with language that really it's happens in your gut right in, in in how it makes you feel that part of the brain um doesn't really have a capacity for logic or language so like a lot of times like maybe someone will ask you you know why do you love your husband and you say uh you know well you know yeah i mean uh, besides all the obvious things like i just i don't know i just love him it's just it just feel i just have this feeling right and it's a you can't put it into words but it's just there right it's it's a feeling so a lot of times the you know in terms of like what your what your goals are for your life are feeling based um like you want to have you want to live on that farm and you want to be a little bit off grid and you want to kind of have this vision of your life you can describe why you want to do that, but what's kind of moving you in that in that go towards that goal is really a feeling. How do you link the feeling and the language together is is a key question. How do you get your rational, logical mind in tune with that desire? Because as you make decisions and as you articulate your vision, it's done with language, right? So the more you can connect these two parts, the better. And I think that... Um, you know, in a, in a lot of cases, um, you know, you may have you may have um, a rational sort of plan for yourself, but you but that rational plan for yourself, if it if it eliminates the 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 feeling piece, you're going to end up going down a path that is going to look really good on paper, but you're going to get there and still feel empty, right? Which a lot of people do. Like I know a lot of people who have been very successful on paper, like very they've checked all the boxes, they've made money they have um been they've taken companies public they've they've like done everything they check and, and you know what they're miserable right they're not happy because they never connected that with what it is that they really want out of their life right and so connecting those two things i think i think the the golden circle that simon sinek does which is in my book and there, you can go to youtube and google it, is fantastic exercise in kind of connecting you know, the feeling with the what. So it goes why, how, what, like why you do what you do, how you do what you do and what you do. And connecting the why you do what you do with you do with what you do is kind of the practice here. Like I want to do this because I really want to, um, you know, make the world a better place. How I do that and what I do to do that is kind of the key. So it's a complicated thing. I think a lot of people... Um, I think a lot of people just traditionally, particularly in our culture, are very goal-oriented and very task-oriented around like checking boxes and and kind of um, making progress, like building the resume, you know, sequentially and making sure that every, the next title on the resume is a step up from the previous title, like, you know, all of that stuff.
And I think that that it's great if that's getting you in the right direction to go to make you actually a happy person. But if you're not linking that to your happy spot, then you're 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 living in two parallel lines and eventually they will diverge where you start realizing that, yeah, I've been successful analytically and rationally and all the stuff I've tried to do. But you know what? I'm still kind of miserable or I'm still not really didn't fill my boat. Like, how do you how do I fill my boat? And um, that lives in a different part of your brain and requires a very different activation than just, you know, beefing up your resume and trying to get that better job because that seems like the right path. It's such a good question. It's a question that I think a lot of people misunderstand. And I wish more people would talk about this, this notion of, of where, where does happiness lie? It really lies in a part of your brain that doesn't really have the facility to talk about accomplishments and logic and rational actions. <laughs> so there's a bit of a disconnect. I think that's part of why people are, you know, there are a lot of people who kind of feel unfulfilled, right? When we have kind of a, like, there's a huge marketplace for books on fulfillment. How do you find fulfillment? How do you find happiness? I mean, there's a massive cottage industry going on. Why is that? Why is everyone so unfulfilled? Like there's something going on here. And I wonder if it's just because people aren't taught, you know, we don't teach our kids to like stop and think about what makes them happy. We're like, you got to be successful. You got to get a college degree. You've got to do this. And you know, you've got to do better than me. And, and we don't stop and say, what is it that you like, right? What's going to make you happy? You know, Yeah. Um. I have a college student who's about to graduate in December and she was told all her life, like, you need to be an engineer, right? Like she, at three years old, she pushed me out of the way and put her own toy together because I was taking too long because that's not my own genius. <laughs> and so um, she started, she went, she's like, okay, I'm going to be a mechanical engineer and hated every minute of it. And about mid-semester, just, it was heartbreaking to hear her because she was so upset to have to tell us that she wanted to change her major. You know, that's where she thought she had to go. And so she hadn't really stopped to think like she just heard all her life. This is you have the engineer's brain and hadn't really stopped to think like, what do I want to do? As a parent? I mean, I, I think these are, I mean, I'm grappling with the same thing with my 17 year old. You probably will not go to college and isn't interested in school. I think a lot of us are tied to an old paradigm, you know, that, you know, where there's a path, there's a supposed path. And if you're not on the path, then you're doing something wrong. Right. And I think that we need to free ourselves, both ourselves and, and by extension, I think our kids to find the path that fits them, not the path that we think is right for them. Same thing about, you know, training in, in your transition, there's a path for you. That's yours. It's not, someone else's path and there's no roadmap for it you need to figure it out for yourself and if you end up go going from the marine corps and becoming a buddhist monk and want to like you know live in you know um wherever buddhist monks live <laughs> um tibet, maybe? Mere, mere, yeah tibet yeah there you go <laughs> um then then more power to you right who's to say that that's not the right path and i think uh the more we do that, the more we kind of buck convention and buck this notion that there's um, there's there's one definition of success. Uh, I think the happier and the more productive everybody will be, and it includes your kids. And it's hard because we grow up with very defined expectations of what you think your kids are going to do. 
and then they want to do something else and you're yeah. like you know all right man okay. sounds yeah, <laughs> yeah go for it yeah that was a definitely a better conversation than she thought it was going to be we're like okay if that doesn't make you happy then don't do it it's fine you know like you wasted a semester but you know in her mind she's like i wasted a semester i'm like no you spent a semester figuring out what you don't want to do and so we'll figure it out at the end and she is going to go a semester over and that's okay like okay so you walk out with one semester of student loan debt you know the rest of it was paid for by a scholarship you talk about fear in the book and fear being the most prominent emotion and you also talk about the best antidote to fear can you tell me what that is fear is a a prevalent thing i think when you're facing the unknown i think the transition any kind of transition but particularly the transition from the military to civilian world is full of a lot of unknowns if you've never been in the civilian world if you went into the military right after college or at 18 and this has been your primary job and your primary orientation to the world boy there's a lot of fear in this big wide unstructured unfiltered like you know environment that you're about to embark in in with no with no roadmap like there's no linear promotion path for you like there's no you, you, there's no longer what bidding on your job in the military, you know, like you kind of know what the next step is and where maybe even where you'll be stationed. I mean, there's like a, there's a, there's a path, right? In the civilian world, there, there is no path. I think that, that fear undergirds a lot of decisions that are made um, when you get out because you're trying to distill many choices down to fewer choices, right? Which is a natural thing to want to do, right? You want to try to control your environment as much as you can. And I think that the danger of that is that if you make decisions based on a, in a, from a fear paradigm, you're often, first of all, I think you're closing off a part of your brain that might really engage new choices and new opportunities because you're just not seeing it. And secondly, the more narrow your worldview gets, the more tunnel vision you'll become to one one outcome. And and so the good news is that if it's the right outcome, that's great. But if it's not the right outcome, so there's two there's two bad things here. If that's not the right outcome and you get the job, then you have a job that you don't really like or you have a career path that you don't really like and that you're going to have to go through the process all over again. Or you don't like the job. Um, or you don't get the job, I should say, and and then you 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 end up having to start over anyway, right? So there's a limiting factor to fear in the I think the way the brain kind of looks at opportunities that kind of shuts shuts you down and narrows your focus to a point where you're not going to see opportunities that you might want to see and and might really be able to engage. Do you think that taking action and moving forward is a good antidote to that? I think you get into a situation where you're only seeing what you're seeing and you're overanalyzing probably what it is that you're looking at. And so I do think that getting out of your head, um, getting out of your this sort of fear, fear-based um, silo that you've got found yourself in, is really important. Taking a break, taking a step back, even taking some days and saying, okay, I'm going to like leave this aside and I'll come back to it later. Taking a walk, like even just like clearing your mind, calling a mentor, getting perspective and getting yourself out of kind of this uh, analysis paralysis, fear-based sort of thinking 
I think is, is really what you need to do. Because if you don't break that, if you don't break it, you're going to continue down this path. You know, there's a reason why it's, it may feel easier to continue down the path because it may feel like it's something that's much more manageable and controllable because it's, it's, it's one option out of many and you've kind of focused on it. But again, it may not, it may not lead you down the right path. And I think it's important to break that cycle by detaching, taking a step back and kind of looking at it from a fresh perspective. You have another recommendation in the book about creating your own personal board of advisors, which I think could be a really valuable tool to help you look at things. You know, we said it earlier, we have a a clouded view of ourselves, a clouded perception of, of our situation. And sometimes we need an outside person to give us some, some insight. So what, tell me about like, what's the purpose of that personal board of advisors and who you should invite to be on that panel? I mean, I think that it's critically important that you get feedback um, and you have perspectives that are, that are different from your own. I think that mentorship is critically important in any kind of transition process when you're going from something, something that you know, to something you don't know. And whether that's starting a company or whether that's, you know, um, going to grad school or, you know, um, whatever it is that you're doing that is different from where you've been, getting perspective from those who have been there and done that is is critically important. Who should be on your board of advisors? Um, it's kind of an interesting question. I mean, I, I think there's a there are a number of different profiles Obviously, you need someone who knows you and supports you and loves you and will give you the pep talk when you need it. But you need more than that. You need someone who maybe doesn't know you as well, but can give you kind of unfiltered advice about um, the area that you're looking at. So it may be a subject matter expert or maybe an expert in kind of the area that you're interested in going into. And there's someone who's not nearly as invested in your um, in your success as the person who loves you is, but, and, but, 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 you know, really wants to be successful is going to spend some time to get to know you, but is also not afraid to say, you know what, I think that's kind of a dumb idea. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Save you from yourself in a way. And then I think that, you know, there's, there's some other profiles. One would be, um, you know, have, have a stretch mentor, have a, a stretch goal of, Someone who, you know, maybe really is well-known or someone that you don't think would ever take any interest in you and try to find someone who really um, has the ability to open doors for you. In a, in, you know, and, and it's harder to find that, but it's not impossible. And I think if you, you know, kind of set your sights on, you know, here's someone who's really active in this, you know, this industry or is kind of a thought leader, like I would really love to be able to, you know, pick their brain and have them sort of you know, take me under their wing a little bit. You don't want a yes person for this. You won't, but you, but you do want it one yes. But you want someone who, when you're really feeling crappy, you're be able to call up and say, "Hey, I'm like, can you make me feel better?" You know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but you also need someone who's all willing to like save you from yourself and and also say, "Hey, I wouldn't go down that rat. That's a rabbit hole. Like, I wouldn't go down that." It's kind of a mix, and I think a lot of it's very personal in terms of you know who do you who do you jive with. I mean, it's got to be. Um, someone that you, um, you know, you trust, but you also, I feel like you um, have a connection to. I think you're right. Like I, sometimes I worry that when I bring an idea to the people that love me and care about me, they're like, yeah, that's great. I think that sounds really good, but they believe in me. So of course they think that really, you've got to have that honest opinion. Like you said, if someone who will say, okay, you need to 
think about this, right? Like that's not a realistic. So that, I think that's a, that's a great, great idea. So, okay. So again, read more about it in the book. I can't even tell you enough about how much I recommend you pick up Ken's book. I think it will completely change the way you think about things in the military transition. And as we wrap up today, I want to end with one of what you say is Stoicism's most important concepts, which is memento mori. Hopefully I said that right. Uh, what does that mean? Memento mori is is basically re remember that you you are going to die, essentially. And, and far from being a morbid concept, it's really a reminder to live your life today. Don't put off what you for tomorrow, what you could do today. Realize that nothing is guaranteed in life other than this very moment that you're living right now. And I think it's a very important concept because we we tend to orient our lives a lot in the future. We're either very focused on the past and, and the challenges we've been through, or we're very focused on what we're trying to accomplish later, right? So our 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 system is based on, you know, focusing on preparing for retirement. Like everyone's talking about retirement. Like how much do you have in your 401k and are you going to have enough money, you know, when you're old? And I think that that's useful societally for sure. Like we don't want a bunch of retired people who don't have any money, obviously, but you don't want to orient your entire life towards the, some future state that you really don't have any control over. You don't know how long you will live. All you know, you know, the, like the Stokes like to say that, you know, the past is gone. The future has not happened today is the is the focus of your life right now. And I love that. I also love another concept called amor fati, which is love your fate, which is also a similar kind of thinking around, you know, love where you are today, embrace it, um, engage it, don't lament it, don't think for a second it's not where you should be. You know, really um love where you are right now cuz fate is really what you're doing today. It's not so much where you're going to be tomorrow. And those are things that kind of keep you just in the present, right? And so even in transition, when you're going through a crummy you know, process or you feel overwhelmed or feel anxiety, that's part of you getting to the other side. It's like when you went through boot camp and you were just hating it, you knew that that was part of a process where when you got to the end and you put the uniform on, you were going to feel a sense of accomplishment. So when you get through this crummy place, and you realize that you have found a transition that works, you're going to look back and say, you know, I'm glad that I didn't skip that. I'm glad I didn't hope that it was over. I'm glad I just said, I'm going to, I'm going to wallow in this crappiness right now because I feel like that's part of what I need to go through. It's just a constant reminder that, um, you know, look, life is precious. It's uncertain. And all you know is today. And if you forsake today for tomorrow, or if you don't live today because you're living in what happened 10 years ago, you're missing you're missing your life as it as it really exists. It's a beautiful sen sentiment, really, when you think about it. It is. And I think it's um, it maybe it almost inspires you to take action and to move forward toward that that dream that we you know we, we were painting earlier and it do, and it doesn't mean i think um love your fate in, in particular doesn't mean you don't strive for the future and you you're not continually pushing to have a better life it's that you don't you don't look at that better life as the destination and this is this is not um this is a devalued uh part along that path in other words people often think well if i just get there like if i just do this 
if I just accomplish this, I'll, I'll be happy. And you get there and you're not happy because the, the point is not the destination. The point is, you know, is, is the journey, right? It's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. And I think the more you think about like, yes, I want to, I have goals. Yes. I want to be successful, but I don't want to think about that as the only valuable piece of my life. What I'm doing today is equally important and maybe more so because I don't know if I'm ever going to get there. Sometimes when we're so focused on the future, we forget to enjoy what we have around us, right? So we're not present for the people that we love, for our children, our spouses, our family. We forget to, you know, stop and smell the flowers that are all around us today, as opposed to like, we're planting a garden for the future. So I think that is a great point. I really appreciate you kind of just, you've walked us through a large part of the book, but there's so much more in there that I've got to recommend you go out and get it. Um, Ken, it was really great to sit down with you today. I appreciate you coming on and sharing all the, the concepts with us. Thank you, Lori. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Lessons Learned for Vets podcast. If you learned just one lesson today that you believe can help you in your military transition, then I've done my job. Please don't keep this podcast a secret. Share it with as many of your active duty service member friends and transitioning veterans who may be struggling with that process as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and join our YouTube channel so you don't miss any lessons that we share.